Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And today we have our best of 2023 episode. We will be going through some of our favorite movie-going experiences, talking about the film year as a whole. And instead of doing top fives this year, we will be going through a number of fun superlatives, getting to talk about some of our favorite things from the year, like our favorite movie, our favorite breakout performance, ensembles, needle drops, all sorts of good things. Yeah, I always look forward to this end-of-year episode We get to talk about everything we've loved, everything we've hated even, and I think doing it in this way, we'll get to do that without being like, okay, this was my sixth favorite movie of the year, Mm -hmm. and kind of pinpointing why we really like them or what about them made them so unique. So I'm excited to talk about so many movies this episode. It's kind of mirroring our top 200 episode where we talked about a ton of movies, but focusing on this year in particular. And there are so many movies to love. I can't wait to dive in. Yeah. Okay. So I think just to get started, let's think about 2023 in movie going. What did this year mean to you? Did you think it was a good movie year? What stood out to you in terms of your film going experience? I don't know if this will shock people, but I feel like this year in movies for me was better than many in recent years. I think overall, I loved way more than I have, I mean, definitely last year, I feel like I was struggling to come up with the top five and even older movies that I had watched. There were maybe only a couple fives or four and a halfs last year. And this year they are bountiful. I tried to keep each list to like a top 10 because there's so much that I love. Maybe part of that is coming back after COVID with productions coming back despite the writers and actor strikes. But yeah, I really love this year. I think we got a lot of variety in our film-going experiences and some really exciting movies that brought everyone back to the theater, which allowed there to be more conversation, which I love that I was talking with more friends than usual, I think, about movies and what they thought, whether it was good or bad. I love having multiple text threads of people talking about movies. What did you think about the year or how does it compare to previous years that we've covered on the pod? I am going to be bold and also say I think this is the best movie year we've covered in the history of our pod because it really is just a deep bench of great movies. I think like when I think about how much I love Tar, for instance, I don't love a single movie this year as much as I loved Tar, but I love more movies this year than I have in previous years, which is really exciting. And I think what you said about getting to talk to more people about movies, that's what made it really special because... You know, I think normally we can get stuck in our bubble and really only talk to people who watch as many movies as we do in a given year about what's coming out, about what we like. But this year I found myself hearing from friends who don't go to a lot of movies. I talked to a lot of coworkers about movies, which that's just not the norm. And I feel like Barbie and Oppenheimer were a huge part of that. Everyone wanted to go see both of these movies, which I think was just maybe a surprise once we got down to it. But when I think of 2023 as a movie year, I think of those two movies in particular. But again, the list of movies from 2023 are so much deeper, really, than that. We have so many more movies than Barbie and Oppenheimer. But I think that was really the story of the year and what brought people to theaters. And I think the fact that both of those movies were great 
really was exciting. And I saw so many movies this year, got to go to Telluride for the first time, get to go back to New York Film Festival, which is always a joy. I feel just so lucky to be getting to see movies that come out now and to cover movies in the way that we do. I think the breadth of movies is most important. Like we're talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer. We have been all year and they will be Oscar movies, but I'm also going to mention movies on here that may surprise people or you or movies that we won't be talking about for the next few months. So I think getting everything from those two to either smaller movies or movies that went straight to streaming platforms or ones that are more obscure, I think is also exciting when you look at a great year of movies. Absolutely. Do we want to get into some fun letterboxed stats? Yeah, let's do that. Let's start with our total watches for the year. What is your final count? We have another two days as of recording, but this is pretty close to the end. Yeah, so this year I my total count is 365. I try to watch at least 365 movies every year. During COVID, it was a little bit more than that. It's a little, you know, it's a little lower. I think I've seen a lot of people get into like the 400s and 500s and I just, I can't do that. I think that a movie a day for me, that's the goal. Like at least one movie a day. And sometimes, of course, I'll have days where like when I got my COVID booster and I watched three movies in a day or when I go to a film festival and I watch three or four. But yeah, 365 is the final count. I think this is the highest count I've ever had. I am currently at 410. Oh my god. Even more than that, I don't know, saying 500 or I saw somebody with 800 on Twitter. I'm like, 800? The time? Like, are you kidding me? Crazy. (laughs) One of the things I did try to get better at this year in terms of just watching was, you know, I think when you go to festivals or when you cover film in the way that we do, there's a pressure to watch so many movies and to get... Like so many movies on your watch list or to tackle so many. But I feel like I was much better this year at giving myself the space and time that I needed to actually think about certain movies. Like after seeing The Zone of Interest, I did not go see Rustin right after that because I knew I wouldn't be able to focus on Rustin. So I feel like I'm, I'm getting better in that way too of not just marathoning things, but taking the time to sit with it and enjoy it and think about it afterwards. I don't mind a marathon. It just depends on the day and how I'm feeling. Like the other day I watched six movies and I'm like, okay, great. And other days I don't want to watch a single movie. (laughs) So I think attending multiple festivals like at Cannes, I saw 20 movies at New York. I saw 15. So those definitely helped boost that count. But I also really wanted to get through certain older films that I had put off for so long. And we'll get to some of those. But Mm -hmm. like having different lists on Letterboxd, especially the Criterion Collection, which I've gotten through quite a few, even in the past two weeks. So Mm -hmm. it's fun getting to those big blind spots, some we mentioned on our Top 200 episode. But yeah, just really having a desire this year to devour film and consume as much as I could. And I loved, again, a lot of what I saw. I'm so glad to hear that. I think we should talk about our most watched actors and directors. Mine are so painfully obvious. It is almost comical. Did yours change from last year? Yes, they (laughs) did. So last year, my top actors were Robert De Niro and Kate Winslet. And my top directors were Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg. 
And my, again, my actors and directors are both different this year. It's just funny because I'm looking at mine too and my top two actors last year were Al Pacino and Kate Winslet because we did those. They won for that yes. episode. <laughs> so I will say mine are very different this year. One you will be very excited for and is probably on your list too are Jane Fonda or Faye Dunaway on your top actors. So Faye Dunaway is my number one. I watched 13 Faye Dunaway films in 2023 okay i mean that tracks so those yeah. both are on mine i love it with seven movies but i also have two actors tied for seven what was your next watched actor so my next watched actor was diane keaton with 12 films so those both track and they're very high <laughs> they both track yeah i thinking about it, i'm like 12 diane keaton movies what did i watch this year but there are some amazing films in here and some stinkers so yeah my actors were willem dafoe and harrison ford which are kind of out there but willem dafoe has had quite a year i started out by seeing inside where he's like the only actor in that film basically mm -hmm. and then obviously poor things recently which we've discussed but harrison ford i went through the original indiana jones trilogy because i had never done that before so that definitely boosted for him i did not watch four or five i still haven't seen dial of destiny you can wait <laughs> put it off as long as you want yeah but i think an interesting list what about your directors so both of my first place directors i watched six of their movies this year one did not have a new movie coming out and one had a new movie coming out if you want to guess scorsese no oh wow what about pta yep i watched six pta movies but that was because i was on an episode of Film Fragments on the films of Paul Thomas Anderson. So I did a little rewatch for that. And I saw Magnolia on the big screen for the first time mm -hmm. yesterday. Amazing. How was it? That one, I think I've talked about before. It's not really a favorite of mine when it comes to PTA, but it finally clicked in for me. I think seeing in the theater really made me connect with it in a way that at home viewing it just didn't work for me before as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was great. And then my other director was David Fincher. So I did a David Fincher rewatch before The Killer. Who were your directors? So my top director had more than six. But with my top three, I had Spielberg with six, Scorsese with seven. And this is also no surprise, Miyazaki with nine. So I tried to go through a full retrospective of him. I still haven't got to Porco Rosso and I didn't rewatch The Wind Rises because I wanted to have a final ranking of all of his movies but I will mm -hmm. get to those soon but with his recent The Boy and the Hair and I saw that three times that does not factor into the nine so I saw nine of his films and The Boy and the Heron I think landed above 50 percent any other fun letterbox stats from the year that you want to call out I will just mention a few other technical crew members that I found interesting. One is Robert Yeoman, the cinematographer for Wes Anderson. Mostly that's where most of those come in. I had five of his films, five from Adam Stockhausen, who's worked with Steve McQueen and Wes Anderson, but also on Scream 4. Those were my five watches from him. And then composer, genius, John Williams. I saw a ton of his movies. And then my top studios, which I found interesting, were classic Warner Brothers and Paramount Pictures with 26 each. 
Okay, so my funniest statistic, guaranteed, is if you look on at your crew and studios section under original writers, I watched two films that have William Shakespeare as an original writer. <laughs> Those films are She's the Man and Anyone But You. Oh my god. So they're not even still getting like, those straight Shakespeare adaptations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that one I wanted to point out because it truly gave me a good laugh. And then, yeah, my most watched studio was Paramount, which is not shocking mm-hmm. at all. Classic Paramount is by far my favorite. When it comes to their library, I watched like The Conversation, Reds, Heaven Can Wait, Roman Holiday, Days of Heaven. Chinatown like there's so so many good Paramount films Mm -hmm. that I watched and then I mean just looking through my list it's a ton of PTA collaborators Dylan Tickner his editor Daniel Lupe who's one of his producers it's fun though like looking into the credits of these people though because Daniel Lupe he was also high on my list because he produced Killers of the Flower Moon but my favorite credit by far is the William Shakespeare credit for She's the Man and Anyone But You the latest Glenn Powell and Sydney Sweeney rom-com. Those are great. So do you want to list some of your top themes and nano genres that Letterboxd has compiled? Yeah, so this is a new thing that Letterboxd has done, which is, it's just very funny. You have themes and you have nano genres. So my top theme for the year was dreamlike, quirky, and surreal storytelling. I watched 23 movies that fit into this theme. And then my third most watched, I also want to point out because it's just funny, Holiday Joy and Heartwarming Christmas. (laughs) That's a staple for sure. Definitely. And then my nano genre, I had two that tied for number one with 19 films. The first is Killing Intense Sympathy. (laughs) And the second is Charming Magic Whimsical. (laughs) Opposites, though. So that's kind of interesting yeah killing is how it starts right it's like whew. and then you open it and you're like okay rope oppenheimer killers of the flower moon bonnie and clyde it's a it's an interesting interesting group mine are a little surprising they all kind of cater to movies for children my top themes two of them are fantasy related with 12 and 16 so it's fairy tale fantasy and enchanted magic and then my number two is kids in animation and my number three is emotional and captivating fantasy story (laughs) okay (laughs) the Miyazaki really did it for you this year I think that pushed these over that really is what it is and the first one I had like how the Grinch stole Christmas and the nightmare before Christmas and certain other animation films Disney related or not but Miyazaki's are in there as well and then my nano genre is the top one with 20 films animation imaginative colorful which kind of goes along with those and then my second one cry (laughs) childhood (laughs) magic (laughs) i think cry is the most important word there cry is incredible because when i click on highest rated themes in nano genres cry friendship love is my number one (laughs) highest rated (laughs) <laughs> oh boy the cancer season is is really it's all year round mm-hmm. 
Okay, should we get to our superlatives? Yeah, let's get into it. I think this first one we mentioned on our top 200 as well. This was our movie personality of the year, and they both align here. So mine is The Holdovers, which I think I try to mention again, but just a warm film. It's now streaming on Peacock, and when this episode airs, it will have been released on Blu-ray and DVD. So grab a copy, go watch on your TV. I love The Holdovers, too. I'll mention it in another category we have coming up, but my favorite movie of the year is May-December. This film has incredible performances from Natalie Portman, Charles Melton, and Julianne Moore. It is a really prickly story, and it showcases Todd Haynes's power as a director and his command over melodrama as his preferred, I think, method of storytelling and preferred genre. It's hilarious, it's dark, it's emotional, and it's one of those films that will stick with me for a really long time. Sammy Birch wrote an incredible screenplay, and I hope that people check this one out. It's on Netflix right now. The next category we have is our favorite theatrical experience of the year. I have a lot of these, but I wanted to mention a movie that I just had a great time going to see, and it was Renaissance, Beyonce's documentary of her tour, the only tour film I saw this year, but one that was just really exciting. It was at the AMC Lincoln Center huge IMAX, so I wanted to see it on the best screen possible. I think her editing, direction, the storytelling was flawless. Like, I just did not expect that. But yes, it's just a fully consuming experience and getting to see all of her music and the choreography and really behind the scenes of how they constructed the set and how she had to put together a lot of the components to the film. There's a whole scene about her wanting a certain lens and people telling her that it wouldn't be possible to get and she goes and gets it. And it's like Beyonce doing the work and uplifting black stories black women and their importance to this industry and really the other part of the film that i really loved is showcasing the audiences and how much they loved watching her and how important it was to have this safe space to go to this concert and i think seeing people cry and sing along it was just such a joyous film what was your favorite viewing experience this year Well, first, before I get to mine, I totally agree with you on Renaissance. This was such a fun movie-going experience, and you really see what a genius Beyonce is. She's completely peerless in terms of other musical artists working today as just a visionary in terms of not just what she wants her albums to sound like, but what she wants the visual experience of one of her tours of a particular album to be and to feel like for the audience. And you're right, the editing is insane. It's in one song and you just get these quick cuts and she's, they're not noticeable, but she's suddenly in different costumes. And it's not just a filmed concert. You really understand who she is as a person and who she is as an artist. And yeah, it's a it's a very powerful visual experience for sure. My favorite theatrical experiences this year are all around Barbie and Oppenheimer. I loved seeing both of these movies in theaters multiple times in different formats. So for... Oppenheimer, I would say my favorite time going to see this was when I went to actually see it in 70mm IMAX at the Lincoln Square AMC, which is just one of the only true IMAXs in the country. And you could just feel 
an energy and an excitement there for this movie. And I think it really just flies by despite its three hour runtime. And it's my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. It's really not even close, honestly. The sounds and the score and the performances and really like I was I was just in awe of it in that amazing theater. And the other was seeing Barbie, of course, and my Barbie viewing I had a horrible day when I first saw Barbie. Like, I had a really, really bad work day. I was just incredibly stressed and just really tired and not feeling it. And the second Barbie started, all of that went away. And I cried throughout the entire movie. I cried during the Dance the Night group number. And it was just a steady stream of tears throughout. And I just... Had never really had that feeling before, I think. I mean, throughout my life, and I talked about this on our Barbie Oppenheimer episode, but throughout my life, I mean, so many guys growing up would tell me like, oh, you have to watch Lord of the Rings, or you have to watch this comic book movie, or you have to watch the Lego movie, or all these things. And I just never really understood the importance. And it just felt kind of nice to have something that was so unapologetically feminine and just fun that I connected with and had connected with unknowingly since I was a little kid. And that was just really special. And just seeing seeing people connect with it in that way, I absolutely loved. So Barbie and Oppenheimer as my theatrical experiences. I also mentioned those on our last episode. I loved both of these. They are really indicative of their directors. And I love them both in such different ways. And yeah, I think just what they did for theaters worldwide this year is phenomenal. Oppenheimer is really close to reaching a billion and Barbie surpassed that months ago. So really props to both of them. I think Barbie for being, yeah, this very feminine film, which moviegoers I feel like can sometimes complain about. And then Oppenheimer being a three hour biopic, which audiences also complain about. So their ability to make that feat happen, I think is really telling and special, especially in 2023. Our next category, we have favorite breakout performance. Yeah, so my favorite breakout performance, there are a number of these here that I could, I think, call attention to that I really loved this year. I think it was a great year for breakout performances, but I'm going to go with someone from your favorite movie of the year, And one of my favorite movies of the year, Dominic Sessa from The Holdovers, who plays Angus Tully. He just has a sensibility and a quality that feels like someone who belongs in another time. And I've always loved actors like that. And I feel like, you know, he, to me, is like a baby Elliot Gould, Donald Sutherland type. Like he just has that that look to him and that kind of aura around him. And that is everyone knows high praise coming from me. And I posted this on my Instagram story the other day, but I need him to work with Paul Thomas Anderson desperately. This is just what I want for him. I think he needs to stay in the 70s spot for a little bit because he just has that face. But I think as Angus Tully, he brings so much to this story. Heart, humor, this dry New England wit. But also, like, he really, I think he goes toe-to-toe with Paul Giamatti. You can't tell that this is someone who is acting in his very first movie ever. So, yeah, I'm going to say Dominic Sessa. I loved him. I can't wait to see what he does next. And I hope, fingers crossed, that he gets a surprise Oscar nomination in a very crowded category. This is also my winner. I loved him in this movie. He shines even if he doesn't want to. He feels like this special presence on screen with 
both Devine, Joey Randolph, and Paul Giamatti. But yeah, he definitely completes this movie in a way that I think made it hit harder for me than I initially expected. But I did want to mention Sophie Wilde from Talk to Me. It's hard for me to really connect to a horror film, but I think what she does with this performance helped make that happen. Seeing her possessed was one of the scariest things this entire year. But I did want to mention one more. I think he comes in second place, and I'm surprised you didn't mention him. It's Messi, the Border Collie, as Snoop in Anatomy of a Fall. This was his first movie, so I have to applaud him. (laughs) We love Messi, our palm dog winner. You know, I limited my categories to people, but I feel like that is really short-sighted of me because we know I love Messi. Yeah, I think what he does from that first moment where he picks the tennis ball up, falling down the steps, and stares at Sandra Uller, you're just like, holy crap, he knows something that we don't already. And I think from that moment on, he really is an important presence and obviously has a really climactic, heart-wrenching moment later on that really brings his performance home. Speaking of Anatomy of a Fall, my other mention here was Milo Machado Graner, who plays Daniel in the movie. He has been in a few like French TV series and movies here and there, but this really is, I think, his big breakout. And I would, I'm very serious when I say vote for him for a supporting actor nomination. I feel like he's just amazing in the movie and really holds his own with Sandra Huller, who gives such an incredible performance there too. So yeah, a lot of love from us for Anatomy of a Fall already, of course. Mm-hmm. And we call this breakout performance, I really tried to limit it to first-time actors. Mm -hmm. For Sophie, she had been in a couple TV series, but this was her first movie. And then Dominic Sessa, obviously, his first ever performance. But I guess another special mention that I think you would also approve of, you awarded it your one Oscar on our episode, and that is Charles Melton in May-December. So there are other performers this year that really stood out, but that's kind of my qualification for my answers. Yeah, it makes sense. Messy, though. Great pick. Next up, we have our favorite first feature. Again, there are a few here, but... One that really stood out to me from the minute I saw the movie and is still one of my favorites of the year. It's Celine Song's Past Lives, a movie that deeply affected me, the movie I cried through the most this year, and just created these lovable, relatable characters, this heartbreaking story, one that I really couldn't look away from. And also shot beautifully, written beautifully, just every aspect of this film I applaud Celine Song for. I completely agree. This is my pick too. Um, A.V. Rockwell for 1001 would be an honorable mention for me here. And Raven Jackson for All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt. I would mention both of them. In addition to Celine Song for Past Lives, who would be my winner here. This for me, it's Brief Encounter for the 21st Century. I think that Tao Yu as Sung, his performance will always stick with me. It is so sensitive and thoughtful. And these characters just feel so real to me. It just feels like Celine Song took a camera and is capturing the lives of real people in New York City. But it's also so personal to her and you know that it's personal to her. And I think that Song being a playwright, sometimes when playwrights or people with theater backgrounds go into filmmaking, you feel that and you see it in 
maybe the ways that a stage adaptation or someone coming from that background, it can feel limited. But here, I think you really feel her playing with things that she wasn't able to use in playwriting or on stage before, like her manipulation of time and the passage of time. I think that's something that really sticks out to me. And I think this is also just a new New York classic. It's a perfect New York movie. I feel like there's so much longing and magic in the city in the movie. And that is something that I feel really sets this movie apart from some other releases this year. And it is just so romantic and well-written. I love Past Lives. And yeah, I saw it in June and I still think about it and need to rewatch it soon. Same. Yeah, I can't wait to rewatch this. Next category, our favorite ensemble. Okay, so for this one, (laughs) I I tried to think outside of the box a little bit and go with movies I hadn't mentioned already yet. I wanted to mention The Iron Claw here, Sean Durkin's latest film about the Von Erich family. I think that this cast, everyone is really strong. I want to specifically call out Harris Dickinson, who gives my favorite performance in the movie, but... I think that Zac Efron is fabulous. I think that Maura Tierney, who plays their mother, is wonderful. But everyone in this family, I think their their performances are really strong. It really is an acting showcase. And they're dealing with incredibly difficult emotions throughout. And they handle them beautifully. I'm excited for more people to see The Iron Claw. My next pick here is a really another very sad, sad, sad movie. I cried very hard during both of these movies, and that is All of Us Strangers. I think that if you're looking for the best acting of the year, you have Andrew Scott, Jamie Bell, Claire Foy, Paul Meskel, and what they're doing in this movie is really, really difficult. I mean, Andrew Scott having to play someone who is an adult in his 40s in the movie who when he goes to speak with the ghosts of his parents, suddenly he's also 12 years old again. I think that's a very tall order for an actor, and I feel like he plays with the sensitivity so well. This is my favorite Claire Foy performance and favorite Jamie Bell performance, too. I mean, Paul Meskel, that part of the movie, I would say, doesn't work as well for me as the part with the parents and Andrew Scott, but... I still think he's doing great work too. And it's the type of role he really excels in. So I would say all of us strangers. And then my last fun pick, I'm going to say 80 for Brady and book club, the next chapter, because I love seeing my, my ladies, Jane Fonda, Diane Keaton, Mary Steenburgen, Candace Bergen. And in the case of 80 for Brady, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Rita Moreno and Sally Field all get together and just have some fun and enjoy their experiences making movies together. And I'm not kidding. There's a moment in book club, the next chapter when Diane Keaton and Jane Fonda have a heart to heart where I started crying because I thought of them both in the seventies and how they really came up at the same time in the industry and had really different experiences, but were, I think really praised for their performances that they gave and the types of women that they played on screen that It was very overwhelming to see them both admiring each other. Which brings to mind a movie from last year called Moving On with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. Which I watched this year on a plane and really liked. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, I really liked it. (laughs) I watched it this year too. And the charisma they have on screen together makes me want them to have like 10, 15, 20 more movies just like this. Either silly ones or serious ones i don't care it's just they're wonderful on screen together 
whether it's just them or it's a big group of people, and they're still the same actresses that they were 40 plus years ago. And that is why they Mm -hmm. are so special. And yeah, even in a movie like that, or like these where they're pining over Tom Brady, or in Italy, you know, it's just it's a fun time for them. And I love that they're still on screen doing whatever the hell they want. I love your other picks too. The Iron Claw would be up there for me as well. But I will say for my picks, Barbie, we've mentioned this already, but I think Gerwig casting all of these people together was just phenomenal. I think Margot Robbie really surprised me. The more I watch this movie, I think her delicacy and nuance in playing such a renowned character and doll And then Ryan Gosling doing what he did. I mean, every minute of that is comedic and amazing in his own right. I kind of wish he wins for this performance. And then everyone else. I'll I'll mention some of them later in a fun way. But my other mention is Bottoms, which was also a fun time this year at the movies. Having Rachel Sennett and Ayo Idebri, they are both singular comedic actresses. And putting them together just made them such a riot. And then add that onto the story of the film, this women's boxing slash martial arts slash defense <laughs> club. Add that onto like the Gen Z era and making it this satire and these other comedic performances. It's just a total hoot and was really one of the most fun experiences I had at the theater. It was nonstop laughing the entire time. So wonderful script, wonderful ensemble. I wanted to mention them here. I love it. Next, we have the most unique film. So my answers, I know I couldn't narrow any of these down to one. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, This is the one category where I did, so it's fine. (laughs) Two of these I watched pretty recently. One is Reality, which is on Max, but it's with Sydney Sweeney in this true story of... When she was arrested by the FBI for releasing this classified document on the Russian interference with the elections in 2016. And the movie prefaces itself by saying that the entire script, all of the dialogue comes from the records of the day she was arrested. So everything is word for word of what happens. And there are certain redacted lines that are done in a really interesting way. And the movie is like 85 minutes long. It's perfect. It's, I think, a really interesting watch and one that people should be aware of because how the movie ends and what it does with the information is also just a really telling thing and how America handles not only documents, but people that try to defy it. And then my other one is Beyond Utopia, a documentary that was on the shortlist and still in the race at the Oscars. I am all for this getting nominated. I don't know how it's not the front runner, to be honest, because. This movie also prefaces itself by saying this is all footage taken by these people. It's real footage. There are no reenactments, which makes it all the more chilling. It's the story of North Korea defectors, of people wanting to leave the country, and this pastor who helps them, who really puts his life on the line to get these people to safety. And it takes them days, weeks, months even for that to happen. So it's these harrowing journeys And this firsthand footage, mostly from phones, and how they smuggle other footage out. And when they are rescued, they get to see lives in North Korea. It's enthralling and scary to watch. I really recommend it. 
And then my other one, I think I've mentioned briefly on the pod, but it's Rotting in the Sun, a film by Sebastian Silva that is just really subversive in what it's doing. To reveal what it is is really the twist of the movie, but it is really two different films together. It's about this man who is depressed, suicidal, and there's something that happens that really changes his life and the movie in itself. And I think the actors are lovely people might know this as the jordan firstman film this like online presence Mm -hmm. influencer that is just so mesmerizing and mind-numbing to watch in this movie that once you get through it i felt like a different person for better or worse but i think it's a really fun mystery film as well it's a bit graphic at times but it's really fun. Once I got into it, I was fully in it and I was locked in. And that doesn't happen often for me. So that's why this was special. I haven't seen any of these movies, so I'm going to add them to my watch list. Amazing. My most unique film is Agro Drift. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I almost mentioned that later. I'm like, uh, no, it's fine. No, you talking about like being a different person afterwards for better or for worse just made me think of Agro Drift. The Harmony Corinne film, of course. No, but in all seriousness, my answer here is The Zone of Interest, Jonathan Glazer's film. I think that what makes this unique and why I wanted to put it in this category is because of the way that it's filmed and just because of the concept itself. So. I think making a Holocaust film where you never actually go inside the walls of Auschwitz and you spend all of your time outside of those walls hearing what's going on behind them. It's a dark concept that's very, very effective in practice when you're watching this film because he forces you to rely on images that you already have of the Holocaust because he knows that I think these sorts of films and in literature, they've existed for so long. So instead... You place your focus on this horror that exists within this family when you see how flippant they are in talking about the Jewish people that they know and how for the Haas family, it really is the story that you could see in any other film of a man who wants to get promoted, who wants to hit targets at his company and his job, who wants to create a good life for his family and when you realize what that means in the context of this family it is so unsettling and sickening and it's just a different type of holocaust film that i feel like we haven't seen before and what glazer does with the camera is also so unique i think in setting up multiple stationary cameras around the house and making it feel like you have this big brother effect of cameras observing this family through this distant gaze you're not experiencing this world through the nazi point of view you are watching them enact terror and violence and that i think is something that's again very unique and very different when it comes to films about the holocaust yeah such a chilling movie i'm actually going to mention that in the next category which is best shot of the year oh there's so many good shots from that movie so i'm i'm excited to hear um what you mentioned there so my favorite shot from the year is actually from my favorite film of the year may december and it's this beautiful shot where um joe charles melton's character is outside and he's finally let the butterfly go and we see his reflection in the glass, the glass door. 
And we see his daughter in the other side of the frame, just looking lovingly at him. It breaks my heart. It's such a an emotional shot and moment in the movie. And I think it's just captured beautifully in showing the duality of the characters in the story, but also, you know, thinking about Joe having these children that are living a life that he never got to live because of what he experienced. And I think it's just really beautiful. My other shot that I want to mention is one that just really got under my skin when I saw it. So I'm going to do my best to explain what this shot looks like. This is Eric Messerschmidt's work on The Killer. But we have a shot where um, it's when they're in Paris and Michael Fassbender's character is just sitting on a bench. He's eating his Egg McMuffin without the bread. And we he's just people watching. And we see this little kid who has a fake gun, like a toy gun, pull it up and pretend like he's going to shoot his mom or his nanny, this adult woman who's with him. And he holds it, like holds it up to her head at gunpoint. And it is just so, like, you know it's a toy, but there's something so dark and strange about how this movie explores violence and just the everyday nature of evil that I found to be, I think, described really well in this shot in the movie. So I would say those two for me. And then anything from Killers of the Flower Moon. But I will be talking more specifically about that one, that movie later. So I'll just say those for now. I think those are both great encapsulations of those films, too. The one from The Zone of Interest that I really loved is towards the end. I mean, yes, there are so many in this movie. There's, you know, the flower and how it dissolves to red. But the one that really shook me was towards the end, the brother forces the other brother into the greenhouse. Oh, my God. And it cuts from a frontal view of the brother outside making gassing noises, laughing at the brother stuck inside now, to this wider shot where you see this happening, but behind it, you see this trail of smoke come in of the train. And it's just this mirror of the kids playing and making a joke out of this, but this being such a dark reality for so many people, millions of people, people that only scenes before they were talking about taking all of these Polish Jews and murdering them 10,000 at a time in these chambers that they're talking about are so efficient and it's harrowing material that is captured so starkly and silently that it really makes you sit with what you're watching and it makes your mind work more than it telling you what you should be feeling. So that I love that it's it's one of the darkest shots of the year and of that film there are some with Sandra Uller, too, that are just terrifying. While we're on the zone of interest, that shot in particular, this time I was watching it. Oh, my God. I agree with you. I think that that's the best, like, most chilling shot in the movie. And I think we'll we'll talk about this when we give the film a more proper review. I think once we get into our Contender series and hopefully get to talk about it more. But the film is shot by um, Lucas Zal, who did Cold War. I really hope that he gets a nomination for this because I think the cinematography is just Mm -hmm. absolutely stunning. But everything in that movie with the kids is so much. Like, it is so... I don't know. That's what got under my skin, I think, this time when I watched it again is just how, you know, when you're thinking about the world, right, it's very normal for young children to mimic their parents and thinking about how young boys will just mimic the actions of their fathers and... Glazer, I think, knows that and shows it in really the most chilling, 
scary way as possible. And that greenhouse shot is the, that's the one. I think that's the one that will stick with you. And then the other shot from the movie that terrifies me is when Sandra Huller's character, known as the Queen of Auschwitz, Mm -hmm. is trying on that fur coat. Oh my God. Modeling it in the mirror like she's at a store. Lord. Yeah, I hope we talk about more because the baby and the lipstick and how she treats the housekeepers who are inmates, they're Jewish prisoners. Terrible, but I think necessary in deconstructing. So yeah, hopefully soon we'll talk about those more. Some other shots that I really loved, one from The Taste of Things, I guess multiple, but just in how they capture the food. This kind of got a delayed release. It had its qualifying run, so it will be out in the new year, I think in February. Definitely go see this. This is France's entry into the international feature at the Oscars, but it captures food like I haven't seen since Babette's Feast, which was an Oscar winner from the 80s. It's delightful, and it just shows you the love that you can have for food and how they prepare it and preserve it. I think my favorite shot of the year is from something I just watched. It's from The Iron Claw, and... There's a shot that starts on one of the brothers, played by Jeremy Allen White, who's playing Carrie Von Erich, and he has a bloodied forehead, his hair is dangling down, he looks like Christ being condemned. And then the other brothers who are sitting next to him are starting to be superimposed over him, and it looks like they have three heads, and it's fantastic and insane to think that Sean Durkin is making this comment about the characters, and then the dad walks in to the dressing room where they are and he is superimposed onto them as well and then once he enters the room at the end of the shot you see them all look up at him and they're looking up but he's below them and it is just the most beautifully blocked shot and shot shot that i had to pause and be like oh my god (laughs) i couldn't believe my eyes so oof this is another tough one but i think really rewarding in a darker way. Mm-hmm. The Iron Claw also, since I don't really know if we're going to be able to talk about it because A24, I don't know what they're doing with this movie and its awards campaign because if this movie would have had like a Telluride premiere or premiered somewhere else, I think, earlier in the season and actually had time, I think we would be seeing these actors in conversations for getting nominations. I think we still can. It's still very possible that someone could show up at SAG or something like that. But I don't know. I think this film is so, so beautiful. And for me, it features one of the most beautiful interpretations of the afterlife that I've ever seen on film. I'm like going to cry thinking about it. There's a shot in particular of feet that I will just say that made me start sobbing. (laughs) And it reminded me of Terrence Malick a lot. Like it just Mm -hmm. the way that he thinks about the connections between life and death and nature and familial bonds and like your family history and how all of that persists through time. I feel like it's so beautiful. And once I realized what I was watching, I just, I I started sobbing and I couldn't, couldn't stop. It is such a delicate, thoughtful exploration of masculinity and specifically, I think, American individualism that, I don't know, I was, I was just really impressed by it. And I, I love Sean Durkin. I loved The Nest. I loved Martha Marcy May Marlene. But there's something about this one, I think, where we just we see him as one of the great filmmakers of American domestic drama. Yeah, I haven't stopped thinking about this movie since I've seen it. And it's another one that I loved 
more than I expected to. I know you were worried for me and I was worried for me, but (laughs) I think, you know, the ensemble is perfect. We mentioned them already. They all bring something special to this film, but each character is so layered and believable. I mean, these are real people we're talking about. It's a true story. One of the best well-known family in wrestling. So I think how Durkin captures them on screen, not as two-dimensional characters, is really special and makes this film bigger than just a biopic story. Yeah, one of the most devastating endings. I cried so hard that I couldn't really watch anymore. But yeah, I hope we can talk about it later this season. And next we have best scene. Special mention, Scream 6, the introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Silly but fun in how, again, they Mm -hmm. meld this idea of filmmaking and horror with Samara Weaving in playing this like trivia game that brings it back to the original. But then I have to mention the Barbie bus stop scene with Anne Roth and Greta demanding that this being kept in the movie. I think it adds something so special. Time almost stops in this moment when these two women are just looking at each other. And then Ken, Ryan Gosling, just barges in talking about horses. And I think that stillness of what their conversation means is so special to this movie and really what the movie is getting at. Apart from like Barbie's later conversation with Gloria, I think this is the heart of the movie. And it's so quiet and so special. Yeah. Oh. I love this moment so much. And I'm so glad that Greta got to keep it in the movie because I just rewatched Barbie twice over Christmas. <laughs> so I watched it the first day it came out on HBO Max. I was just home by myself and I just thought, oh, I should rewatch Barbie again. And then, of course, like my mom wanted to rewatch it later. So I ended up watching it again. And it's an insanely rewatchable movie, which I think is partially... I mean, that's a lot of that is Greta and what she did with this story and making it so fun and lighthearted, but also really deep and making you really think about your own experiences and your relationships. Um, I think specifically with your mom, like that is just what she does so well. And I rewatched Little Women over Christmas as well. And it just the connections between the two. I just saw them so much more clearly, I think. And I just that scene is a huge part of that. Mine here I have. So I would say in Barbie, the I'm just Ken dream ballet. Excellent. I'm so glad Mm -hmm. that she went for it. I need Greta Gerwig to make a musical because clearly she has the knack for it. The argument in Anatomy of a Fall, where we hear the argument first in the courtroom from the recording, and then we get to actually see this argument taking place between Sandra and her husband, her late husband, Samuel, and the things that they say to each other in this moment, you really get to understand who these two people are without, I think, giving anything away at the same time. It just makes everything even more ambiguous and keeps you on your toes. And I just remember it's a long scene too. But when I first saw this scene, I was just enraptured by it. And I I left that scene having more questions about both of those characters, which is always something I like to experience in movie going. My next one is the Trinity test in Oppenheimer. I love this scene because I feel like in the movie, you're really building up to this big moment, like this is the big moment of the film. And I think that Nolan 
executes it perfectly. It was unexpected to me in how he handled it, but also felt like very signature Nolan, like something we've seen him do in the past, but a a stronger version of that, I would say. Like he'd been working up to a moment like this throughout his career. And I love that the sound cuts out when the bomb goes off. Mm-hmm. And you can hear a pin drop in the theater during that moment. And then the sound coming in later, I think it's just, it's really brilliant in terms of execution. And then my last one is the Ely Cathedral scene in Maestro. I know that everyone is talking about this and how Bradley Cooper prepared for it and everything, but I think it is such a beautiful, beautiful scene in the way that it shows Mahler's Second Symphony and plays with the sound in that space. And you really feel it's one where, and I I mentioned this on our New York Film Festival episode, but it's one where when I saw this, people clapped afterwards. It was like a moment at a concert. And it's just, I think, a really, really beautiful scene in that movie and a reason to see the movie in theaters. Oh, I love the cathedral scene. Oh, I want to rewatch it really just for that moment even. Mm -hmm. Okay, our next category is best needle drop in a movie. This is a really fun category. So I have a few answers for this. My first one is How Soon Is Now in The Killer. It is so funny. And the way that Ren Kleiss plays with the sound and how we don't always hear it from the killer's perspective. It's cut out sometimes, it's muffled at other times, and it's almost like Fincher knows that we want to hear the full song, but he doesn't let us. And I think that that's so smart. And just the fact that this guy listens to the Smiths all the time, A+, just so funny. My next one is a deranged pick, and that is Always Be My Baby from Bo is Afraid. And the reason I put this on here is because I will never hear this song in the same way ever again. I have heard it, you know, in public, and I think of this horrifying scene between Joaquin Phoenix and Parker Posey, Mm -hmm. and that's what a good needle drop does. It takes you out of wherever you are in your current day-to-day life, and it puts you right back in the world of the movie. And Mariah Carey also, you know, went to the Bo is Afraid premiere and we have those great pictures of her with Ari Aster. I just want to know what was going through her head when she read the script and approved of the use of her song Mm -hmm. in this movie, because again, it's not okay. (laughs) And my last pick has taken TikTok over by storm. And that is Murder on the Dance Floor from Saltburn from the last scene This song is actually charting now since this movie's (laughs) release. It is so catchy. And I feel like Emerald Fennell, sometimes I think she works around needle drops that she wants to put in her movies. And this might be one of them, but I don't really care because I love, love its use in the movie and feel like it's just such a fun song to leave the movie on. Such a memorable scene. And I think that's in part due to the song itself. Yeah. And we get to hear the full thing, which is mm-hmm. fun. Like a lot of times you'll just hear like little little bits of a song when they're used to deal drops, but get to hear the whole thing. And one take, yeah. My songs, I have a few. One is from Robot Dreams, the animated neon film. Also devastating, which I didn't expect, but I love in animation. And it's September by Earth, Wind & Fire. Such a memorable song, but I think how it uses it adds such depth to it. I don't want to give much away there. But my other song is P.I.M.P. from Anatomy of a Fall. It's how the movie starts. (laughs) I had to mention it. 
it really changes, I think, how you feel about the movie and maybe what you're getting yourself into by opening this way. Another song, I don't know if this counts, but it does for me. I thought it might have been an original song, but it wasn't. It's from The Holdovers. It's the first song that we hear in the film. It's Silver Joy by Damien Hirado. Mm-hmm. I mentioned a warm hug earlier in this movie, and I think the song just immediately does that for me. It's winter time. The song feels like a warm cup of cocoa or coffee and places this deep sadness on the film. And it's just the minute it starts, you know what this movie is going to be. And that was really special for me. Another one for me is when Mike, one of the brothers from The Iron Claw, he's a musician. He turns on his stereo and Tom Sawyer starts playing and it goes into this montage of them fighting and all of the brothers really working together and being again an iconic song i think this is a great moment in the film amongst a soundtrack that is really incredible one more i want to mention because it had to find a way into my list is the sound of silence being used in naiad oh my god (laughs) i was wondering if you were gonna reference naiad anywhere and I'm so happy that you found a place for it. (laughs) Telling Annette Bening that she reminded me of Dustin Hoffman from The Graduate is one of the greatest moments of my 2023. So yeah, this song is really important to that film too. Oh, I love to hear that. And Nyad does though, it's so interesting because I think one of the things, and we talked about this on our episode, that Nyad understands as a movie is how important music is for swimmers in your internal playlist that you have Mm -hmm. to keep track of your pace and how long you've been swimming. I feel like it's just, and as a distraction too, I feel like it's so, it's so smart. Um, But I love that you compared Annette Bening to (laughs) Dustin Hoffman. That is, it's a great, great comparison. And I totally agree with you on all of your other picks too. Those are all, all really strong. Next we have best ending. So our favorite ending from a movie this year. My first favorite ending was from the movie How to Have Sex. It ends with this really uplifting scene that I cried in every time I watched it. And the song Strong by Romy and Fred again plays. Perfect way to end the movie. And then my other favorite ending I also cried in is from Past Lives. Just the culmination of this friendship, this relationship, and the dialogue that they share with each other and how they both changed each other's lives and respect that and have moved on from that maybe is so incredible and yeah still thinking about this movie having seen it in june and having that same effect on me is why i had to put this in here i love the ending of past lives so much my favorite ending though is i think the best ending i've seen in years honestly and that's from killers of the flower moon i still don't know how Scorsese pulled this off, but it is just him, I think, at his most adventurous, his most playful, and he is essentially putting himself in the film and understanding the contradictions of his place in telling a story like this. And that is powerful storytelling. And when I think about the ending, I think about how important it was for Molly Burkhart's character early in the film to be reading the names of the deceased Osage. When Scorsese says there was no mention of the murders, 
reading Molly's obituary, it took my breath away. I just, I kept crying. It was so, it's just, that makes you realize that he is the greatest filmmaker we have living today. And he should be winning every director prize. That's just my two cents. But I I loved the ending. I thought it was just absolutely beautiful and one of the best things that he's done in his career. Yeah, this was also one of my favorites. It just totally shocks you. And then you get the final scene of the dance and the zoom out. It's incredible. It's a perfect way to end that movie. Our next category, we have most beautiful film we saw this year. I'll say Killers of the Flower Moon. I think that what Rodrigo Prieto does here in a few scenes and shots is incredibly beautiful despite the movie's intense sadness i think of a few one scene in particular that reminded me of a scene in the iron claw actually has to deal with the afterlife it's one of the best things i've seen this year i'll also mention all dirt roads taste of salt which is this visual poem of a movie and i can't believe that it was raven jackson's first feature And then my last pick is Sofia Coppola's Priscilla, which I think is just incredibly well-designed. The costumes, the hair and makeup, how Graceland looks, how we observe young Priscilla's life, but it never feels voyeuristic. It feels like we're along that journey with her. I think that's what makes it one of the most beautiful films of the year. My film here is Godland, which is Iceland's submission to the International Feature Oscar and was on the shortlist, which makes me really happy that it may still get nominated. But it's about this Danish priest who travels to Iceland to build a church. And he's also a photographer. And the movie itself is set up saying that it's based on seven photographs that were found of this journey, which is a fiction. But I think that idea is fascinating because the film is shot almost like this eight millimeter feature. It looks like a photograph. The edges are curved and every frame is a painting. It's one of the most meditative and beautiful films, definitely this year, really that I've ever seen. And I think how it devolves as this character falls further and further into this landscape is so mystifying. And some of the final shots took the filmmaker's two years to accomplish. I think it's a movie that you would really like. I'm surprised that I really loved it, but I was just totally consumed. It really is the Tree of Life meets Kubrick and Bergman together, which is crazy and weird. And it's, yeah, I, I really loved it. So I watched the trailer for this on the Criterion channel last night. Mm hmm. And I just said to myself, no, I can't do this tonight. I need to be in the proper headspace because it looks amazing. I mean, the the visuals, you're right. It is just, I was sucked into it. It looks very up my alley, but I know I need to be in the right headspace because it also looks very dark. And you know, I love movies like that, Mm -hmm. especially when they concern religion and religious figures. I'm always compelled by that. So I'm very excited to check this out. There's a lot of symbolism, but there's also a lot of nature, and it gets into that political conflict between the Danish and the Icelandic, which was a colony of Denmark, but religion as well and spiritual. There's a lot going on in this movie. Yeah, I highly recommend it. Next, we have our favorite first time watches of 2023, but they had to be released at least five years ago. I had mentioned a few on the top 200 episodes, so I'll leave those out here. Go check that out. One from earlier in the year was Come and See, which is a harrowing war film. 
it's one of the most tragic and horrifying I think ever and it's known for being that too but I love that I love the cinematography my other favorite ones were Wings of Desire which I mentioned Thelma and Louise I absolutely love seeing that at Can on the Beach and the Three Colors trilogy Kieslowski's blue white and red mirroring the French flag and its ideals It lives up to the hype. This was one of my biggest blind spots. I'm so happy I finally watched them. And the ending of each individual film, but also Red as a trilogy, makes you feel so whole. And the imagery is just beyond. There's so much to digest, but it's beautiful and lovely in every way. I have the Criterion box staring at me, and (laughs) I cannot wait to watch these in the new year. The cover and the wires just make so much sense after you understand what that's a picture of. Oh, God, it's beautiful. Oh, I'm excited. (laughs) Um, So I I mentioned the 400 blows and the earrings of Madame de on our R&R Oscar Wilde Top 200 episode as two of my favorite first time watches. I highly recommend both of those and go listen to that episode if you haven't already. My other, it's hard to call this a favorite film because I will never watch it again, but one that really got under my skin was Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Have you seen this? (laughs) So I watched a bootleg YouTube (laughs) version of this movie because it never plays anywhere and so it's hard to find, but this is a movie by Richard Brooks that came out in 1977. Diane Keaton made this the same year as Annie Hall, which when you watch both of those films, you will be shocked that she was able to do both in the same year. It is incredibly disturbing as a film, and the end of this movie will never leave me, I swear. It is very haunting. It's one of those movies that you will have trouble sleeping after you watch, but is absolutely worth watching for Keaton's performance in particular. I have my issues with Promising Young Woman, like we mentioned last week. I think that this is a movie that is the better version of that movie, I will say. Um, Basically, Diane Keaton plays this woman who is a teacher, and at night she goes out to these bars looking for very violent men, and the movie just escalates and gets very dark and disturbing. But Keaton is, she's a phenomenal actress, mm-hmm. and we know that, but this is a very different side of her that we don't see. But listeners, if you watched it, let me know what you think. Oof, maybe I'll add it to my watch list eventually then. <laughs> In our next category, we're mentioning favorite first-time watches that we covered specifically on the pod on Oscar Wilde. There were a couple of these. I think we had more bad ones than good, I think, for some <laughs> of our rewinds at least. <laughs> But one of my favorite first-time watches was The Long Goodbye by Robert Altman. We didn't cover this movie specifically in a review, but we did a lot of rewatches for our 1973 Oscar Rewind. And I thought this was a perfect movie. I loved Elliot Gould in it. It feels, for me, connected to every other movie that I love. And it's Altman holding a mirror up to the detective story to film noir, but breaking that mirror in real time throughout the movie. And I love a movie with Elliot Gould and a cat. And that's what this movie is. So highly recommend The Long Goodbye. Then my other one is a funny one. And that's Supergirl, a movie I really had a lot of fun (laughs) watching and covering. (laughs) specifically for the Faye Dunaway, Brenda Vaccaro scenes, where Faye Dunaway plays this 
witch named Selena, who's mm-hmm. after a college groundskeeper. I loved my time watching this movie, and I recommend it, even if you have to fast forward through the parts without Faye Dunaway in them. What an absurd <laughs> film. <laughs> so, so absurd. But I'm so serious when I say it is one of my favorite comic book movies of all time. <laughs> it's like this, Batman Returns, Josie and the Pussycats. My favorite watches, one of them we covered on the 73 episode as well. This was Day for Night, Truffaut's film about filmmaking when he's shooting a film. I loved it. And then my other one was for our Jane Fonda episode. She received her first Oscar nomination for this movie. They shoot horses, don't they? A very dark Sidney Pollock film that I really loved and what it did as a period piece and in deconstructing like American capitalism and the really grimy side to it. Jane Fonda is wonderful in this movie, my lord. Yeah. Oh, this is such a good, such a good movie. And what a first nomination for an actor. Should have won. You know, for all of our exciting, fun categories, we had to have one to bring down the mood a little bit. I'm sure there will still be a lot of laughing in this category, but we have most disappointing movie of the year. I have so many, but I'm trying to limit it to at least a few. First off, I'm mentioning Skinamarink. This was an early 2023 watch that I didn't necessarily want to go see and leaving the theater knew I didn't have to. I just didn't get the hype that some other horror fans really loved about it. My other film was Bo's Afraid. I think disappointing because I've loved Ari Aster's other works and changing the film from Disappointment Boulevard, that was the first disappointment, and then actually seeing the movie was the bigger one. I just did not connect with this movie at all. And when you mention that song, even though I remember now thinking back to loving that moment, or at least the shock value of it, I had completely forgotten that scene. So, well, I'm sorry for that. The shortlist mention is scary in a sense, but yeah, not one of my favorites of the year. And then I had a few from Cannes that were really disappointing, but the biggest one was The Sweet East, which I think had a small release recently, but I just didn't enjoy a single second. And I had already napped before this movie, so I couldn't <laughs> fall asleep. <laughs> in this very small hot theater which was otherwise the correct napping circumstance you know it's playing at ifc right now and i do want to go see it i'm (laughs) really curious again just for jacob alordi but i fear you may like this movie and i don't know i'm interested though (laughs) okay okay well i that makes me more intrigued to go see it now that you say that so i just have two here the first one is talk to me I feel like our standards for horror have gotten lower just in terms of some of the movies that have come out recently. I just haven't loved them as much as I've loved, you know, my my classics, my 70s horror movies. I didn't really like X or Pearl that well, as you might remember. I'm just really critical of horror movies because I, I love them so much and I just want more from them. And this was one where I just left feeling really upset. I really didn't like the main character in this movie at all. And it was one of those things where every decision that she made, I just became more and more frustrated with the movie. And I think this was also just a victim of too much hype, really, because people were talking about you know, how it was the scariest movie they've ever seen and everything. And for me, I just, I just was upset by it. And 
that doesn't always work for me when it comes to horror. My last one is a movie called Leave the World Behind. This is a movie that just came out on Netflix and it's by Sam Esmail. I didn't have too high of hopes for this movie, to be honest, because I don't really love dystopian thrillers. I don't like the end of the world as a concept, typically in my in films. But I thought, okay, this actually has a great cast. Ethan Hawke, Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali. Maybe it'll be good. Maybe, you know, my preconceived ideas of what this movie could be will be wrong. Well, it was somehow worse than I expected. And I found this movie to be a smug disaster. It reminded me a lot of how I felt about Don't Look Up. In that it's endless. goes on and on for way too long. The humor is not my speed. The performances don't work for me from actors I usually love, and it's just a mess. So yeah, leave the world behind. I would like to leave the movie behind. (laughs) (laughs) With Talk to Me, I will say this was a wonderful ending. I should have put this in earlier. I understand why people have trouble with it, and I did with the sound design. I felt like it was a bit kitschy, but in terms of horror, there's something to be said about This being A24's highest grossing horror film, to me that is hereditary, but with Leave the World Behind, this was also one of my year's worst movies. The only movie I've ever watched on 1.5 speed and fast forwarded through still, really bad. People complaining of Julia Roberts, that is not the issue here. The issue is the writing and the story's construction and adaptation from an actual book. I'm like, oh God, how could you destroy this material? I think we are inundated with apocalyptic projects, and maybe that's the problem, is that it really doesn't do anything new for it. There is some like impending doom there, but in the end, yeah, it's just not, not a good movie. Yeah, as far as Julia Roberts, I mean, I don't... It's The one scene in the movie where I was truly (laughs) just horrified is when she and Mahershala Ali are dancing. I just wanted to leave. I can't believe I saw this in a theater. I really, I just, I wanted to leave so badly. (laughs) The film didn't deserve that format. But it did deserve me watching it on a plane with earbuds. (laughs) We had the two extremes, I think, in watching this movie. I saw it at the premiere at the Chinese Mm. theater which is, I think, like the greatest way maybe you can watch any movie. And you watched it on 1.5 speed on your phone (laughs) on a plane, which I didn't even know you could watch movies at 1.5 speed. This is news to me. It's the (laughs) new Netflix feature. Yeah. I need two letterbox lists from you, though, I've realized. Actually, three. Movies you watch while commuting. Okay. So train or plane Mm -hmm. movies. Movies you've fallen asleep to. (laughs) And movies that you put on in the background. I will get right on that. Okay, good. (laughs) Those are fun, though. Yeah. Well, let's move on to our next category. We're almost through. Movies you wish you could push into the Oscar race. Yeah, so I have a few here. First, You Hurt My Feelings, which is one of my favorite movies of the year that was totally under-discussed. This is the Nicole Holof Center movie with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. It is is just a delightful, talky New York movie that just feels very real and reminded me a lot of like some of my favorite 70s movies. Highly recommend that one. I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus is always amazing and she's an actress for me who would have been who would truly be successful in any time period or style of film and here I think she's just 
giving us a, a great performance and the writing is phenomenal. Speaking of great writing and performances, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I loved this movie. I felt like it was just such a strong adaptation of a book that deserved an adaptation like this. And I wish that I had a movie like this when I was 10 or 11. The soundtrack is wonderful. The performances. I love Rachel McAdams in this. And I wish that she would get into the Oscar race. I would love for it to get into adapted screenplay. And it would be in my picture 10. It's in my top 10 of the year, actually, which I totally didn't expect at the beginning of the year. But I loved it so much. And then my last one is Passages, the Iris Sachs movie, which has found its way into my everyday life in very surprising ways. My sister and I both have coats that we bought because they look like the brown coat Franz Rogowski wears in the movie. Love that. I want the green sweater. I want the red turtleneck that Adele wears. The costumes for me are the biggest thing I would push into the Oscar race, but I think this belongs in screenplay. Acting, Ben Wishaw. This is my favorite performance of his, Franz Rogowski. I love that New York Film Critics Circle gave him a win. But yeah, this is one of my favorite movies of the year. It also feels like a a character study from another time and very European. This is also in my list. I would love to see it show up, especially after New York gave him that award. I was like, oh, is this possible? I just assumed it was gone because it's very artsy and not for the Oscars. But that would be amazing. My other movie is The Boy and the Heron, the Miyazaki film. It will be nominated in animated feature, but I would love to see it. I mean, I'm still crossing my fingers in score, but cinematography, there are so many other elements that I love about this movie, and it's just really beautiful. I've seen it three times, and I think every time you get something new, but it's just you bask in the beauty of his animation, and kids can watch this, families can watch this. I highly recommend it. Next, we are bringing back one of our old favorite categories, the hottest character. So we used to do a top five hottest characters list. I think this will sort of replace that. If you have many or special mentions, that is totally fine. Mine is so obvious, (laughs) it hurts. So you can go first. That's why I knew I couldn't mention that. (laughs) My fun mention is Glenn Powell from Hitman. Maybe you can speak to his performance in Anyone But You. I haven't seen that yet, but Uh he also looks great in a bathing suit. Yeah, Glenn Powell is a movie star. He is a beautiful man. There are scenes in Anyone But You, short montages of him working out that that are top tier. (laughs) He also makes a grilled cheese that looks amazing. And I just think to myself, like, there's no way you eat this, but I would. Please make it for me instead. Glenn Powell is a treasure, and I can't wait to see Hitman next year. Did you not see it? <gasps> no, I didn't see oh it in New God. York. Oh, my God. Other people on my list, I'll mention some of the Kens from Barbie. I loved Kingsley Benadir, Ryan Gosling, Simu Liu. They were all very hot, and we mentioned that on the episode. So go back and listen to our Barbie episode, too. Yeah. Other hottest character from Barbie mentioned for you when you're talking about the Kens Ryan Gosling specifically performing the Christmas version of I'm Just Ken. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. As Ken, but looking like Ryan Gosling, wearing the sunglasses. When you mentioned Glenn Powell working out, that made me think of Jeremy Allen White working out in The Iron Claw. A devastating Mm -hmm. movie, but I think in that moment, he was the hottest character in that movie to me. 
See, it's Harris Dickinson for me. <laughs> but I like the tall, you know, like he's just, tall, I don't, it's, he's much he more my type least than Jeremy Allen White. muscular person in that movie. <laughs> it's true. That is true. <laughs> he's more adorable to me than hot. But mm. if you liked this and you haven't seen Beach Rats, I would highly recommend that. And my special mention is because they're not really featured in a hot way, but I want to mention the boys from The Boys in the Boat. Oh, <laughs> Because Callum Turner, mainly him, but also Bruce Herberlin Earl, Jack Mulhern, Thomas Elms, Tom Carey, Will Cuban, they're all so hot and it's devastating that George Clooney kept them clothed the entire performance, the entire shoot. It's it's a disgrace, honestly. But Callum Turner is very hot. Why did he do that? How sad. It's a movie for people over 60. It's not for people under 30 yeah well that's too bad (laughs) yeah what is your hottest character i couldn't have any idea on who this could be no idea at (laughs) all right it doesn't it doesn't really make sense or add up is it bradley cooper in the club scene in maestro oh yes exactly (laughs) thank you for thank you for mentioning that shirt unbuttoned full prosthetics Raggedy. raggedy chest hair yes the number one hottest character is Jacob Alordi as Felix Catton in Saltburn. People can have their issues with Saltburn. I understand the criticisms of this movie. That is fine. But one thing we cannot deny, and I don't think anyone can deny, is how beautiful Jacob Alordi is in this movie. Emerald Fennell puts fan cams of Jacob Alordi in the movie. Like, they're just scenes of him dancing around a pole at a club and... Shots of him in a field and a close-up of his shoulder. When I first saw this, it really just, I can't even explain what it did to my brain. The scenes of Felix, like they are the female gaze. I really felt like I was going to levitate out of my seat at certain moments because I had just never, I hadn't seen anyone look this good in a movie in a really long time. No, I agree. He's the hottest. He is Ollie's eye for a reason. And what's our next Jacob Elordi feature we're getting? There's a movie called He Went That Way, which premiered at Tribeca, where he looks like James Dean. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, I just wish we saw more of Jacob Elordi and Felix and Saltburn, considering the rating of the film. Very, very same. Okay, our next category, we have releases from the year that we have yet to see. So for me, I'm just going to go with two that you mentioned really loving, Beyond Utopia and Godland, which were both on short lists, and I'm excited to check these out. And for me, I have yet to see Origin, the Eva DuVernay film that will be out shortly in theaters, and Perfect Days, the Vim Vendors film. All right, and our last question today... If you could give any of the movies you talked about today one Oscar, what would it be? I have to say this was a lot easier for me in previous years when we did this. Today it's a bit harder, which is maybe good because it shows I'm less invested in one particular person winning an Oscar. (laughs) But yeah, it's hard. Oh boy. Okay, I'm going to go with something that may be nominated. I've been obsessed with since I've seen it. And I think even when I look at this movie now... And think maybe it's either gone down in value or, you know, it's been some time. So maybe I'm not as high on it, which is not the case. Every time I think about this movie or rewatch it, 
I feel those same feelings. And that is Anatomy of a Fall. I'm going to give Sandra Uhler Best Actress because I think she really deserves it. I think her work in the zone of interest as a supporting actress shows just how much she can do as a performer. And it is wild. I also saw Tony Erdman earlier this year in theaters. And just to think that that was her big breakout role that got mentioned by the Oscars in International Feature and got her recognized. And now she's doing this is just phenomenal, unimaginable, just so creative. And she's really one of the best actresses I've seen on screen this year. So I really think she deserves the award. And I can't wait to see what she does next. I love that performance. And I also keep thinking of how many actresses I would love to either have their tar or have Anatomy of a Fall. Like I keep thinking about Vicky Crepes, how she needs something like that. Just a little tangent. All my favorite actresses, I just want them to have these big, meaty, sort of mean Mm -hmm. roles. I think that's just exciting. For me, I feel like for actress this year, I will be really happy if it's either Sandra Huller or my pick, Lily Gladstone, for Killers of the Flower Moon. I feel like what she does in that movie is really breathtaking. She centers the film Every single scene that she's in, you can't help but fixate on her. There's a scene of her with De Niro, who I also think is fantastic in the movie, where she says, are you real? And he says, I could be. That is just so chilling. And I think just shows how powerful they both are as performers in the movie. So I'm going to cheat and I'm going to say Lily Gladstone in Best Actress for Killers of the Flower Moon and Martin Scorsese in Best Director for Killers. I cannot believe we are not talking about this more. I feel like it is just such an incredible late career achievement in directing. And I would vote for him in Best Director if I could. And I I love a lot of the movies of this year. You know, I would also love to see Greta Gerwig win something for Barbie. And there are just so many, so many movies that I really love. But Killers is just standing out to me as... One that is unlike, I don't know, it really does feel like an essential American epic. And Scorsese is a huge reason why. From our draft, you picked Killers. I would also love to see Celine Song win some big awards or Past Lives in general. And I picked that movie. And Mm. not that they separate or define us, but seeing that we still really love them and are rooting for them, I think really shows in how great they are. We've talked about so many movies today. This was a great wrap-up for 2023. Plenty more that we didn't mention, but I think this really kind of shows who we are as moviegoers, too. It's still kind of funny looking at our picks and Mm -hmm. what we love in movies. I know. Even some of our more fun categories, they're still very us. So I'm glad that we got to talk about 2023 and experience 2023 as a movie year. I am a little bit worried for 2024, I think, coming out of the strike. <laughs> so <laughs> I I will look back on these movies fondly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm excited to see where the Oscars go. But speaking of 2024, next time on Oscar Wild, we will have our 2024 movie preview special, which I have to say, this episode is one of my favorites every year. It's always very silly very fun and how we categorize these upcoming releases so i can't wait for that so many to talk about i can't wait to mention dune 50 times jk (laughs) but 
yeah, I'm excited for that. Thank you all for listening. Feel free to rate, review, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. We have bonus content at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde and predictions on our website that we'll be updating throughout the season at oscarwilde.squarespace.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.